Couched lets you in on what leading cultural influencers and psychoanalysts are thinking about the world today. We will feature conversations with artists, scientists, and changemakers about our current political climate, social injustices, and our struggle to find sanity in an increasingly uncertain world. Welcome to part two of our conversation with Dr. Ken Corbett and Susan Choi. Before we dive into today's conversation, we're going to take a moment to briefly orient you to the two books that we will, in part, be referencing in our discussion. The first is Susan Choi's Trust Exercise, a story set in an elite performing arts high school in the early 80s that deals with teens' struggles to discover who they are in the world and to find a sense of belonging. Choi's inventive narrative structure creates believable surprises that make it clear how much the young characters had yet to understand about their earlier experiences. The second is Dr. Ken Corbett's A Murder Over a Girl, Justice Gender Junior High. This story compassionately details the murder of Letitia King, an African-American transgender teen, by Brandon McInerney, an adolescent shaped by trauma, violence, and white supremacist ideology. Dr. Corbett takes us into the courtroom, vividly portraying the traumatic mix of race, gender, and class struggle that pervade the lives of these teens, their families, and their community. We hope that this episode will inspire you to read both books if you haven't already. Let's pick up now where we left off last time. I was thinking a lot in reading both books about failures by adults, failures by systems. It's throughout both books. And in particular, though not solely, around failures to think about sexuality and and the sexual life of a teenager, and how you know fraught that is, how anxiety producing that is, and how one begins to navigate it. And I think both of you are pretty daring in being able to enter into that terrain that many dare not want, <laughs> dare not or do not want to enter, or revisit, <laughs> or revisit, right? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, I'm I'm thinking of that moment in your book, Ken, in which two of the teachers at the school complain. There's so much complaining in the book about mm. this child who has mm. been murdered. Mm. And, and all, and all the adults right. seem to join chorus in complaining about this child's behavior prior mm. to their cold-blooded murder. And one of the complaints that I was so struck by is that the two teachers who both feel that any sort of stirring of sexual feeling is absolutely inappropriate in this age, and you need to just put that off for at least two years. Like the the teacher who actually says, do nothing until junior year of high school. <laughs> it's kind of like college applications. Like your sex drive, you need to like put that on ice until junior year. And I was so struck by that, both in how absurd it is and also in what like a catastrophic failing it was on the part of this educator. Yeah. But it's that aspect of the book, as with so many others, isn't dated at all. No. At all. No, no. And in fact, one of the teachers who hold, you know, I think she said that uh, she would have told any girl in her class to button up her blouse and, and get busy doing her work or something like that. That's like um, 1950s yeah, Catholic school. Yeah, yeah. And yet she was like a 1960s hippie. And I was rather fond of her, and I I was kind of uh, heartbroken to hear her 
tell me this? And I told her as much. And I told her that I thought that she really needed to rethink how she was thinking about these kids. And she actually did say to me that she would try. Again, I think we provide so little for public school teachers. And I, I agree with you, the amount of complaining about Letitia and the displaced efforts to save Brandon or the efforts to save Brandon were extremely troubling. There's no question. But I, I was really more, the longer I spent with this, the more I thought about the systemic failure that is at hand, mm-hmm. even in the criminal justice system, whereby Brandon was tried as an adult after a murder that happened when he was 14. And we don't really have a way, we don't have a very good way to think about a 14-year-old who commits premeditated mm-hmm. murder. And the legal system and the justice system hasn't really found a way to manage this. Mm-hmm. Oh, no, it's to the contrary. It's medieval. Yeah. yeah. I mean, Brian Stevenson's remarkable book, such a large piece of it is about young children of color who are tried as adults yeah. and mm-hmm. put in prison for life. Yeah. For yeah, life. Life, yeah. Children who are 13 years old, 12 mm-hmm. years old. Mm-hmm. Of course, it, this disproportionately affects black children in this country, even though that also happened to Brandon. Well, but I'm sure Brandon, if he had not been white and in some way a kind of exemplary version of whiteness, at least in terms of how they costumed him for the trial, let's put it Mm -hmm. that way, I'm not so sure the verdict would have gone in the way in which it did. Mm -hmm. But I think the part of what I'm resonating with what you're saying is that the Save Brandon had something to do with, it's not our fault. Um, we didn't do this. Mm-hmm. And, and I think it's a similar mm-hmm. thing that the Brian Stevenson book is so powerful in conveying is that we all step back and say, wait a minute, we didn't, uh, you know, mm-hmm. we're, we're not responsible for the ways in which the lives that lead these kids into these situations where terrible and irrecoverable things happen. Mm-hmm. And... We have a lot of work to do. <laughs> yeah, 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 and coming coming back to the issue of, of sexuality and, and adolescence, I think that that's another department in which everyone wants to take hands off. Mm-hmm. And I don't exempt myself as a parent of children of this age. This is not easy. Uh, no. Don't want to be here, you know. <laughs> want to do better. Not sure how. Does that wish to kind of disavow the sexuality or the violence... Do you think that affects your writing process? How do you deal with that when you're writing stories like this? I certainly never, with this book, hesitated to depict... I mean, this book was born of the sexual connection between two of the young characters. This Mm. book was originally going to be a short story. I never meant this to... Mm unfurl into this weird thing that it became. I, I really wanted to write a short story that, that I could finish quickly. And the premise had to do with Sarah and David mm. wanting to have sex but not being old enough to drive. That's the first line of the book. Neither can drive. And, and the whole premise was, here's two young people who want to have sex, can't drive. What do they do? It seemed like a very simple, simple premise for what I had hoped would be a compact and short piece of fiction. So I certainly never hesitated 
But I was really surprised once the book was actually a book and in circulation, you know, meeting its first readers by reactions. I Early on before the book was out, but when it was in galleys and was sort of circulating to early readers, I had more than one person say to me very bluntly, I thought that this book was really unrealistic. The level of sexual activity being engaged in by the characters was completely egregious, hmm. unrealistic. Uh, 15-year-old kids don't have sex not like this. It was really amazing to me. And again, like, this wasn't a huge chorus of people, but there weren't that many people seeing the book at this stage. So to have highly educated readers, any number of them, say, this is like science fiction. 15-year-old kids don't have sex. I was like, what wow. planet yeah. Yeah. are you living on? Mm. And so that was interesting to me. But I, it, I think it goes hand-in-hand hand with the education problem that we don't want, we as a society don't want sex education because we don't want to have to acknowledge the fact that people at this age, that, that people, you know, young people need sex education eons before they're 15. Well, and, and that they need it in order to understand. One of the things that I, I really like about the first part of your book is both the comedy and the fumbling practice of adolescent sexuality. And if that could be brought into sex education, mm-hmm. especially the idea of practice, I'm, I'm so uh, aware I think with adolescent patients, I I don't see so very many of them these days, but when I did, their ideas about the fact that they should have had this all worked out, that this isn't something that you actually mm-hmm. have to find your way into, and there's a element of practice, and there's fumbling, and there's failure, and there's humiliation and embarrassment, and, and that will follow you for your whole life. I mean, that, that's, not, yeah. that's yeah. not going to necessarily get resolved when you get to 21. And so I I think that... If uh, we, it's, it's not only education, it's about sex, it's, it's the education about the relational dimensions of a sexual life and the exchange between people. And that was captured so well in Sarah and David. Mm-hmm. But I sort of thought, with respect to what Billy says, is a bit of a pivot, but the question about what it means to write. You asked about disavowal, I think, right, in sex and violence. I really had to track my own experience of trauma in being at the trial. And there is one moment when early on, one of the things I would do was record. I would just go home and speak into my iPhone. And once, and I had trouble sleeping at a certain point, and I was staying in this really um, despair, a hotel of despair. And um, I went out into the parking lot, and it was California. The temperature was the same as it was in the, you know, when you would wake up every morning. And I paced, I think for 44 minutes, if I remember correctly, something like that, and just spoke into the tape recorder. And what I was talking about was how hard it was to hold on to the idea of murder. I remember that. But when I went back to listen to it the following morning, somehow the recording had stopped. Yeah. And it had failed to record. Mm -hmm. And in a way, it mimicked the ways in which I was having trouble Mm -hmm. recording and holding on to what I was witnessing. Yeah. Yeah. You describe it, there's there's ambient noise. Yes. But no, your voice is gone. Yeah. 
It's yeah. like an incredible sort of... Yeah, the eerie. Yeah, it's yeah. like a supernatural mm. trick that's been played on you. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah. Wow. I'm musing here in the present moment, thinking about how the language of literature and the language of... Well, I wouldn't call this book the language of psychoanalysis or psychology strictly. By no means, yeah. it's quite alive with the narrative feel to it. My target reader was the mother who reads The New Yorker. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Me. <laughs> I, well, I, 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 I wanted to try to write a book that would be in your neighborhood bookstore. Because I think that psychoanalysis and psychology has lost the public square. We used to have a voice in the yeah. public square, and we don't really anymore. Yeah, I mean, that yeah. was our hope in doing this podcast yeah. is to start to build that. But it's incredible to me how you're writing about the same things that we're thinking about all the time and writing about in such obtuse ways that aren't as interesting to read often. You mean in psychoanalytic in journals? Psychoanalytic in psychoanalytic journals. That's <laughs> yeah. what I mean, yeah. yeah. So your way of writing is much, it's alive and full with all the psychology that we're thinking about and living with our patients in the room. But my hope is that more professionals in mental health fields will read books like this so that it isn't just coming at them in this kind of dry, sterilized, jargony way. That There's something that gets lost if, if we're right. only reading that, though I am a fan of that reading as well. I think your books, your writing, your talking today make so clear that we become who we are through our relationships, Hmm. right? We don't become who we are in a Petri dish, and we don't become who we are by following certain rules or being part of a certain culture in an abstract way. All of this is given to us and experienced by us in a relationship context, And people forget that. You know, I think we tend to think about people becoming individuals. And are any of us really individuals without all the other people that we interact with? I don't know. And without the cultural order that informs those who hold us in their arms when we are infants. Mm -hmm. That's just not tacked on. The social isn't tacked on. The social actually is transferred in very intimate moments in infantile and childhood life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That's why I found Letitia's efforts so devastating and so brave. Mm-hmm. You know, and I was so angry at all the adults, mm-hmm. especially the, the, the inadequacy of the very few adults who actually do offer some mm-hmm. support. Mm-hmm. It's like, damning with faint praise the quality of the support they offer is so crappy yeah (laughs) no it's like good for you if you can handle it oh that was really awful yeah (laughs) not not what about like you know give this a try i will help yeah you don't have much power give it a try i'll be there and i was really moved by that she's very rough around the edges but the teacher miss boldrin oh yeah yeah who it seems almost purely by intuition Mm -hmm. Mm-hmm. does give support and, you know, gets gets it in the neck for doing mm-hmm. it, but does the one thing that Letitia wants, which mm-hmm. is responds to her as if her femininity were not in question, yes. gives her mm-hmm. gives her clothes, right. gives her makeup, right. and Dress. is silly with her, right. is silly right. with her, right. you know, right. sees her, right. sees right. her the way no one else will see her. But then has trouble helping Letitia regulate her, you know, budding femininity, which I think all kids need help regulating their gendered lives 
in adolescence yeah. and well, early childhood. I mean, as it well. comes back to what you say about yeah. these systemic failures. I mean, yeah. when when you think about you you know you're very right. These are teachers who are reaching into their own pockets to get pencils into the classroom. No one hmm. is offering them any professional support. Yeah, the sex education that my children have received in large part, it's completely due to the fact that I am so lucky in my life to happen to have a close friend who this is her work. Uh Mm -hmm. And my children happen to be in school with her children. And she said, I'm bringing this into the school because no one else is doing it. Mm. So she barreled in and said, you know, no one's doing this here. No one is teaching health and development Mm. to these students. And Mm. I just happen to be here with a vested interest because my kids are in the school. Mm. (laughs) But like, what does that say for everybody else who isn't getting it? Well, even in, I have a a kid, no longer a kid, a young adult now, but someone I've worked with for many years who, when he was younger, I remember he was at a very well-respected and well-funded private school in New York City where there was health and sex education. And what he pointed out to me is that there were identity categories. So there was the category of the gay boy, there is the category of the lesbian, there's the category of the transgender man or woman, but the specifics of their sexual lives were never discussed in the ways in which the specifics of a heterosexual life were clinically at least discussed and illustrated. And he was quite, understandably, quite angry about this. Mm -hmm. And so the strides I think we may have made is in perhaps some places, not many, is that we are able to see a broader range of category. But I don't think really, people are much happier to talk about gender than they are to talk about sexuality. Right. Mm-hmm. No, I think that's true. Yeah. I think that's true. In, in a yeah. back to the future reference, and I date myself <laughs> here, but when I went to high school in the 60s, sex ed was just coming in. It was before they had then banned it afterwards. But our sex ed class was taught by a minister, and it was called Joie de Vivre. Here's the schwade Well, that actually has has something nice to it. Yeah, there's, yeah, yeah. there's some exactly. merit to that. Exactly. Yeah, there really is. It's yeah, like yeah. at least it's an acknowledgement that there there should be joie. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. even if it was foreign. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, I I'm remembering your point too, Ken, about that. I recall sex education being so well, heteronormative to say the least, but very biological Mm. and completely excised Mm. the interpersonal relational aspects, Mm. which Mm. are the things that make teenagers lose their bearings quite Mm. easily in addition to the biological Mm. confusion that could go on. But right now there seems to be this trend in TV and the Netflix and Mm. Showtime realm and HBO with series about, it almost feels counterphobic. It's like they're just throwing it at mm. you, teenage sexuality, depicting it often in action, mm. leaving one to feel confused about how to watch it. Because although we can intellectually know that these are adults on the screen who are portraying teenagers, there's still something very confusing about how one's to sit and watch adults playing teenagers having pretty 
explicit portrayals of sex. And I'm trying to make sense of that. One, Mm -hmm. how to watch these things. And two, how this is emerging while at the same time in schools, there's still this void of discussion and education. Right. It's bewildering. Yeah, it is bewildering. I'm thinking, are you thinking of Euphoria? Exactly. Yes. And And Sex Education, the British show. Uh, Yes, which I actually really think is fantastic. Me too. I I, I, I really, really, I recommend it. That's my endorsement for this podcast. (laughs) Um, But Euphoria is a little hard to locate oneself as a a viewer, in part because of the stylistic phenomenon that they that they engage on the level of the filming itself that can make it hard to find your way in. But I was thinking when you were talking about the ways in which it becomes quite clinical and biological, in the ways in which child patients sometimes can make you aware of something in a way that adults would just never be quite so direct. I remember a a six-year-old boy saying to me once, something else was going on, and I don't remember what it was, but it wasn't linked to what he said to me. But he said to me, so what do you say after you do it? (laughs) 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 And I remember looking at him and thinking, do what? I mean, we were, I think we were playing with Legos or something. Um, and, and he said, you know, do it. And I said, oh, that. And I said, well, I think it depends upon, you know, how the people feel about it and about one another, right? I, I guess that would have something to do with how they would talk about it. And he looked at me and he said, oh, okay. <laughs> and then he moved back to But it's a brilliant question. Yeah. It's at the heart of it. What do you say after you do it or while you're doing it, before you do it, right? It's a brilliant question. Get straight to it. Well, generally what we say when we're reaching the end is our time is up for today. <laughs> That's what they should say after they do it. Our time is up for today. Except I don't do that. I have a tick. I say, okay. Um, It's what I do at the end of every hour. And a conceptual artist I work with once threatened to make a neon sign in my office that said, okay, that would flash at the end of the hour. Thank you for listening to Couched with Drs. Billy Pivnik and Romy Redding, brought to you by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association. Couched is funded by Division 39 of the American Psychological Association and the Psychoanalytic Society of NYU. The advice and information presented on Couched is for educational and entertainment purposes only. Please consult your personal psychological, medical, financial, or legal advisor before taking any action.